Hello and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. The war in Ukraine can sometimes feel like it's taking place on another planet. We're so focused on our day-to-day concerns, worrying about inflation perhaps, or the latest insanity coming out of Washington, that we often tune out news from a faraway place. But the war in Ukraine is having a direct impact on our politics. In Congress, Putin's supporters threaten the flow of weapons and money for our Ukrainian friends. Like the isolationists from the 1930s, some of these representatives and senators would rather watch the world burn than help another democracy survive a brutal invasion. Their flirting with authoritarianism is both shocking and incomprehensible, but it's no exaggeration to say that the fate of democracy hangs in the balance. And if the United States fails in assuring a Russian defeat, the impact to American politics will be felt for years. Like the ghost of the Vietnam War that drove the political debate in multiple elections, a failed Ukrainian war would be with us for a long, long time. So it was with shock and, yes, I confess, a big dollop of glee when I heard the news from Russia this weekend. The leader of the fierce Wagner private army, deployed in Ukraine and responsible for the only real battlefield success for Russia with the taking of Bakhmut, had rebelled. In an amazing 24-hour period, Yegevny Prigozhin blitzkrieged his men and tanks within 150 miles of Moscow. This mutiny, as Putin himself called it, seemed to be the first step towards a coup, a revolution that could topple Russia's modern-day czar. I was excited there for a few hours. But after the deal that saw Wagner turn around from its march to Moscow, confusion reigns. Today, I'll try to make some sense of all this with Admiral Mike Rogers. He's a retired four-star admiral of the United States Navy. Rogers was also director of the National Security Agency, the NSA, commander of the United States Cyber Command, and chief of the Central Security Service. Let's just say that he knows a lot about Russia, Putin, and the fate of our democracy. Here's my conversation with Admiral Mike Rogers. Admiral Mike Rogers, welcome to the X-Ray. Hey, it's great to be back. Thank you so much, sir. Give me your sense of what just happened in Russia. Uh, Prigozhin and the Warner Group essentially marched towards Moscow. They got within roughly 150, 200 kilometers, quite shocking to the whole world. How how do you (laughs) interpret what's actually uh, happened? So first, I think it's important to start out by acknowledging what this was not. This was not a coup. This was not an attempt to unseat the leadership of the government. And this was not an attempt to ignite a broader mutiny. What it was, was a rather misguided and simplistic attempt um, by Prigozhin as the leader of the Wagner Group, which is one of the, it's a large mercenary organization that supports the Russians around the world. You see it in Libya, Sudan, Syria, the Donbass, Crimea, etc. So yeah. it's aggressively used. What is important, I think, is first to step back. So the, the Wagner Group has arguably been the most successful component of the Russian military in Ukraine. Arguably, so for example, the Baku activity that is probably the latest gains by the Russians, now it's six weeks old now, but spearheaded by Wagner. So Prigozhin has had this, for the last year, he has had on at least three public occasions, had this mantra of the following. One, the Wagner Group 
is the most successful military effort in the Russian campaign in Ukraine. Two, it is not supported adequately by the Ministry of Defense. Specifically, he's highlighted ammunition shortfalls. Why is it we can't get ammunition and some supplies? And then thirdly, over the last year, he has repeatedly talked about the reason the war is not going as well as it could or should for the Russians is in no small part because of both the incompetence of the defense ministry as well as the, the defense minister in particular, but that it is the fault of Russia's senior military leadership on the ground and those that are leading the campaign that the Russians have been ineffective. He has asserted those views several times in the last year. I think he got to the point where he decided, I need to force Putin's hand to remove the defense minister to make changes in the Russian military. And I thought, I don't agree with this, and I think he totally miscalculated, but I think he based that assessment on the following. Number one, He's an oligarch who has a relationship with Putin. It appears they met each other in the early 90s when Prigozhin uh, was buying casinos and gambling establishments. And then Vladimir Putin was on the staff of the mayors of St. Petersburg. And one of his portfolios was he ran the licensing of casinos and gambling. So they literally known each other for almost 30 years at some point. Um, secondly, I think Prigozhin felt, hey, look, I'm leading the most successful effort on the ground. They need us. That gives me leverage. Thirdly, I think Prigozhin said to himself, I also do other things. For example, it's Prigozhin who created the, the IRA, the Internet Research Activity that was right, 2016, right? In 2016, as part of their attempts to, through misinformation, manipulate or influence the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. So I think Prigozhin also said to himself, hey, look, I'm doing a lot of other things that are very important to Putin that he knows. Um, and then finally, I think Prigozhin's view was Putin probably fundamentally believes what I do in terms of this assessment about the ministry and the military leadership. He needs to be prodded to make a change. And by prodding him, I will actually give him the opportunity to make an argument, it's not that my decision to invade was wrong. It's not that the war is wrong. It's the execution of the war by several people. Mm -hmm. That's why we're not moving. So I think Prigozhin's attitude was, based on all of that, if I push into Russia itself, I can put enough pressure on Putin that he will use this as a face-saving device to, in fact, do what I recommend, remove the defense minister, make changes in the military. Where I think he fundamentally miscalculated was, number one, as soon as he started moving into Russia itself with an armed military force, and he started seizing territory and facilities. For example, he very quickly, in the first 12 hours, moved into Rostov, which is where the Southern Command or the senior warfighting organization that actually runs the fight for the Russians in Ukraine. He seized that, and then he kept going. So number one, there's this impression that Russian sovereign territory is being violated by a military organization that's not under the control or direction of the government. And secondly, there's this narrative of perhaps Putin doesn't have the control everybody thinks he does. Perhaps that there are fractures in this. I think what it came down to in the end, Putin said, if I have to choose between supporting Prigozhin and his contention that 
we need to remove the Minister of Defense and senior military leaders versus by allowing this to happen, I am feeding a narrative that says I'm losing control. I think he decided I need to I need to assert control. I need to break Burgosian. I need to stop this. It's also interesting the way he chose it. While there were some Russian military efforts against these Wagner Group military assets as the mercenaries as they were moving into Russia and then up towards Moscow, it wasn't a massive military effort to try to crush them or to put significant loss on them. I believe he was he Putin was looking for a way. I need to regain control, but I want to do it in a way where I don't turn, but it goes in into a martyr and I don't get into this very public armed conflict within Russia itself. So he, he, he Putin approaches the Belarusians and says, I want you to cut a deal with them. I, I, and they, the Kremlin has subsequently went out and said, hey, we knew this. We supported this. The idea being, we'll negotiate a settlement. You step down. You stop this advance. We'll allow you to go to Belarus. We theoretically won't confiscate your wealth. We won't take criminal action against you. We won't hurt your family. And we won't take action against the Wagner Group militia members or mercenaries themselves. We'll tell them to go home, um, but we will effectively just kind of end this. Um, so I think, you know, that's why it, it turned out the way it did. One other point I would make, and I apologize, I'm not sitting here just responding to questions. but um, No, no, this is very interesting. I appreciate it. The part that I think is really interesting is twofold. Number one, this suggests that perhaps Putin regime and Putin himself are not quite as strongly in place as most Westerners have traditionally believed, that perhaps there are some fissures or fractures within this structure that we just haven't been aware of. And if I was Putin, that idea of fissures or fractions really manifested itself in two ways to me during this slightly under two-day odyssey. Number one, you saw almost no significant opposition to the Wagner group from the Russian military or right. the security. None of them. They all seemed to sit on the sidelines and watch this. And they managed to allow the Wagner group literally to move from Ukraine into Russia hundreds of miles, occupy cities, occupy military installations. Um, and they never really contested it. They, the military, they, the security services, nobody really contested this. In fact, they really didn't encounter any significant resistance until they got, you know, the closest point to Moscow when for the first time you saw Russian aviation, both fixed wing and helicopters, trying to launch attacks against the lead elements of the Wagner group as it was moving forward. So I think that part really would concern Putin. And the second thing is look at the images that you see on YouTube and elsewhere of the Wagner group as it was entering Rostov. Yeah, they, people were you, cheering. Right, you got population on the street cheering. And it's also interesting to think what it appears they were cheering about. It appears that Prigozhin managed to capture this public sentiment about, I'm standing up and fighting this war. And Prigozhin has been very vocal in saying the war is a good thing. It's the appropriate thing. And we, he and the Wagner group, are committed to it and will fight to make sure that it ends successfully. So I think he is perceived by many Russians as this man who is willing to, to fight this war, but who's being handicapped. By the, by the Ministry of Defense, by the military, and they applauded him for his, hey, look, you are publicly bringing this up and you are taking it up. 
that's a good thing. Um, that would really concern me. If I, if I was Putin, I'd be going, hmm. you know, that that narrative could be effective. That would concern me. So there's a lot of things I think he, that Putin will be thinking about in the aftermath. And what's, to the extent it's knowable, why does Putin continue to stand behind Shoigu, the minister of defense, when objectively the war has been somewhere in near a, a complete failure and a disaster, right? The Russian army has been cut down to size. They have been shown internationally to not be this powerful force, second only to the United States. What's Shoigu's uh, secret? Yeah, but I would argue that's not the narrative inside Russia. And okay. quite frankly, it's the narrative inside Russia that Putin cares about that, I'll say. Okay. Inside Russia, the narrative is much more, we had to pivot to a different strategy from what we did initially. Hey, it shows our flexibility. It tells how smart and adaptive we are. Secondly, we have managed to seize a significant portion of Ukrainian territory, and we are still holding a significant portion of Ukrainian sovereign territory. So the narrative in Russia is less that this is a complete failure. But one trend you've started to see in the last, I would argue, six months in particular is, why is this taking so long? An expectation that it shouldn't have taken quite this long. And why is it proving, not that we're failing, but why is it proving so costly in terms of casualties, in terms of impact on the military complex? You know, that I think that is the way this is generally mm -hmm. inside Russia. So given that, I don't think Putin has felt the pressure to immediately fire the defense minister. I also think he's keeping that in reserve. So right. for example, <laughs> let's say that the Ukrainian summer offensive, which most people believe has started within the last two weeks and is ongoing right now, that were that, were that to prove successful by the Ukrainians, that they were able to seize a significant amount of territory, then he'd be looking for a scapegoat. And then firing the defense minister makes much more sense. <laughs> I think in part he's holding on with this guy as a buffer in the sense that, hey, if it really goes wrong in a visible way, this is the guy that is the fall guy for me, along a couple of generals, maybe. Because he has replaced senior military individuals in the course of this campaign. He has done that several times. I thought it was very interesting when Putin's first speech, as uh, the Wagner columns were uh, moving up the uh, highway towards uh, Moscow, was quite revealing in the sense that essentially he compared the situation to 1917 and the collapse of the czar's army. And yeah, I was wondering how you saw that. It, on one hand, it seemed interesting historically. He's maybe right, maybe not, but that he's comparing himself once again to one of the czars, right? And he's often giving speeches next to statues of Catherine the Great and so forth. So what is he saying to people? He is essentially the czar that is going to keep Russia stable, even if it means jailing well, well, the way people. I would phrase it is he chose to use a context in which it wasn't about him, but interestingly, he didn't say it was about him. He didn't say it was about his government. What he said was, this is an act against Russia and the Russian people. You know, trying to say that, in essence, look, Bezgoyen doesn't have your best interest at first. He really wants to hurt Russia. He wants to hurt you. He's trying to undermine our sovereign state. He is trying to, in some ways, you know, because remember, he also made this comment about, were they acting as agents of the West? Were they supporting the West? I thought it was interesting, though. It shows you a little bit to me about where Putin is right now. He didn't make this about himself. He didn't say they are coming after the duly elected government of mm -hmm. 
Russia, and that should not be tolerated. He didn't say, this is about me as the defender of Russia, and I need your support as we display strength and resolve to stand up to these mercenaries. He didn't say any of that. Instead, he made a much more historical reference to this concept of, it's about Mother Russia, it's about the state, it's about you as citizens. Again, it's another indicator to me potentially of, is he looking through this prism of, hmm, perhaps I'm not quite as strong mm-hmm. as I had thought. I would be best served to not make this about me. I would be much better served to that the population more broadly in Russia can relate to and will respond positively to. I think it's also interesting about what Progression didn't do. He didn't call for an armed uprising. He didn't say, army units, join us, follow us. <laughs> he didn't say, stay in your barracks, don't get involved. He didn't approach the security services publicly and said, you are defending a rotten, you know, corrupt system. You need to shift to us and the fact that we want to remove some of that corruption. None of that. Again, I think he totally underestimated the dynamic. I think he truly believed that by making this more public, Putin would ultimately side with him mm. and then would use these others as scapegoats. And where he miscalculated to me was, you forced Putin to choose between you and the idea of his own credibility and strength. Was he losing control? And to me, knowing Putin, that's not a hard choice for Putin. Right. He is never going to back off on control or the idea that he is somehow weak or doesn't have the full breadth of control of the defense intelligence and national security mechanisms of the state. We never want that to be the analogy. But I got to think at this point, right, that people around Putin, I don't know if in his immediate circle, but in, in concentric circles around him have to think, how did we get to this point? And not because they like him or don't like him, but ultimately in terms of the survivability of the regime, since it's such a kleptocracy, many people are eating <laughs> at the trough, as it were, of <laughs> uh, the state. You know, they want to maintain that, right? I mean, they want to live in their dashas. They want to be able to fly to right. London and, and all this kind of stuff. Do you think they're looking around saying this is the beginning of the end or uh, he's, as you say, he's not as strong as he seemed and therefore we better pick someone ourselves as a successory for it is picked for us, essentially. Is that, so, do you think some, something like that's happening? I think clearly there are some people around who are thinking that lines. I also offer a few thoughts. So number one, Prigozhin and the, the Wagner Group are not the most popular among the established national security environment. You know, not surprising, they view him as this wild card who's totally undisciplined, not a team player, often seems to have his own agenda, and at times very much tries to embarrass the established national security and defense infrastructure. They don't like that. I think they do appreciate the fact that he's helping the fight, but he doesn't have a lot of friends in the the traditional structure in many ways. So there won't, I think, be a lot of people who immediate response to this is, ah, he had the right idea, we ought to. Having said that, clearly I think there will be people reassessing Putin's strength. How long will his tenure last? Because to your point, their entire lives are built around this almost criminal conspiracy Mm -hmm. that ensures that they retain wealth, influence, power at the expense of the society more broadly. And anything that threatens that would likely lead many of them to conclude so if the current guy is ineffective and isn't going to perpetuate this, we got to get rid of him and put somebody in there who will. So I think there'll clearly be a thought there. I would urge people not to assume that as a result of this, 
it implies that there is fundamental weakness that he could be toppled at any time. It is certainly possible. Mm-hmm. However, I think it's much more prudent to see how this plays out. Do you see other groups now talking amongst themselves? You see coalitions being formed within the Russian structure about, hey, one of the reasons Wagner failed was he did this by himself. If we could bring together components of the military and or parts of the security apparatus, hey, we could succeed where, where he failed. Because it is amazing to me, literally, this rather ad hoc fighting group, I say ad hoc, it's not structured quite like the traditional military. It doesn't quite have that breadth of institutional structure and capabilities. These guys still managed to get within, from where they were in Ukraine, it's about 600, depending where you go, it's about 600, 700 miles from most of their uh, dispositions on the ground in Ukraine up to Moscow. And these guys managed to go, mm-hmm. you know, four or 500 miles before they ultimately got bought off. Because in 20, they were in not, 24 hours, which is pretty, pretty impressive. By military action. I think Prigozhin was bought off in a sense that I think Putin told him, I'm not going to do what you want to do. I'm prepared to crush you. You got two options now. <laughs> you either continue this, in which case I will apply the full power of the state against you and you won't survive. And after which, if you're still alive, we'll, we'll take some pretty significant action against you and your fellow leaders, as well as your troops themselves. Because Prigozhin at times likes to pain himself. He has zero military experience. Right, right. right. It's what a, a weird, what a weird situation. A sh- the chef basically tries to overthrow the these are of the Kremlin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it it's, it would be a, it couldn't even be a movie because it'd be too absurd unless it was Monty Python. I, I yeah, think. in some ways, this guy, if it wasn't for the corruption, he'd be a self-made man. Right. He gets arrested for the first time in St. Petersburg, where he's from, for theft when he's seventeen years old. He comes out of jail. And he doubles down. He creates a, a, a gang, if you will, a group that focuses on robbing wealthy homes and apartments in St. Petersburg and then selling the material on the black market. He is sentenced to, I think it was 12 to 15 years for as a grand theft in some way. He goes to prison in 1981. In 1990, his sentence is commuted at nine years. So he's been in jail wow. for like nine years. His sentence is commuted and he comes out to a totally different environment. The Iron Curtain is gone. Russia, the Soviet Union is falling apart. So when he gets out, first thing he does, he opens a hot dog stand with his right. office <laughs> in St. Petersburg. <laughs> Within two years, he starts buying grocery stores. Within another couple of years, he buys casinos and gambling establishments, which is where he probably first met Putin for the first time. As I said, Putin at that time was in the mayor's office in Petersburg, responsible for licensing and gambling and um, casinos. He then gets into restaurants. And after restaurants, he starts to open up a catering dimensions where he, and one of the things he does is he keeps bidding on and winning large catering contracts of the Russian government and in the Kremlin, like major state dinners, events, etc. So he gets this nickname as, you know, the caterer of the Kremlin. And then in 2014, in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Crimea within Ukraine, he creates, and I think he did it in May of 14, as the Russians are attempting to support in the Donbass, the fight of ethnic Russians who are fighting against the Ukraine government, 
And remember, go back to May of 2014, the Russians were actually trying to push their own military across the border, trying to hide it. They shoot down a civilian aircraft with right. one of their own military surface-to-air missile systems that they had deployed into the Donbass. Um, Roosevelt apparently makes makes an, a pitch to the Kremlin leadership about, look, we want to support the fight from by the Russian separatists, the Russian ethnic nationals, but we don't want to use visible governments. But I'll create, I'll create a group of mercenaries. We'll do this. So in 20, May of 2014, he... The other guy was a former um, security service guy who actually had military experience. They create what is now the Wagner Group. This idea will create a set of professional mercenaries that will act in the interest of the state, but will be separate from the state. Therefore, we can say, well, we're just operating on a contractual basis. It's not the state itself. You know, it's not Russia itself. The government did this. In 2014, he also apparently talks to the security services about their attempts to influence and undermine activities in the United States and elsewhere. So he creates, he says to them, aha, again, we need a cutout. I'll create the internet research um, structure in St. Petersburg, and we will create a series of trolls and individuals who will align with Russian security services and their broader campaign. We will be part of the fight, so there's plausible deniability in the effort to use disinformation on a massive scale against the Americans in part to influence the 2016 election. So he's been this guy who rags to rich corrupt, or rags to riches. So there is an element that loves that story within Russia. He's been aligned with the Kremlin from an oligarch perspective. And then he really, about nine years ago, starts to entwine himself with the military, the security services, and Putin as a leader. He's very entrepreneurial, right? I mean, oh, only, if, if, he, if he were American, maybe he would start a tech he'd be, company. He would be exceptionally <laughs> criminality of this. Yeah. He'd be a success story. In yeah, some yeah, way. yeah. Well, maybe he would be part of Wall Street in some fashion. Exactly. Well, well, let me ask you, Admiral, how does this impact the Ukraine war? How does it uh, either make it easier for Ukraine or it doesn't really matter ultimately? It, it would seem that if you're a Russian soldier on the front line, to the extent you're getting any information, this must be very unsettling. And uh, there's been wide reporting that there are uh, all sorts of morale problems within the Russian uh, military apparatus. Will this be a net benefit for Ukraine? Will it help shorten the war in some fashion? The short answer is I don't know. Let's take a look at what we've seen so far in the 48 hours or so since this activity was ended. Um, you have not seen, remember, Ukraine is in the midst of their summer offensive. You have not seen them make massive gains as a result of this activity, i.e. the Russians were so demoralized, so disruptive that the Ukraine military was able to use this for tactical advantage on the ground and therefore captured massive numbers and seized significant parts of territory. It doesn't appear that it, it had that impact. Secondly, you haven't seen so far, it doesn't mean you won't, but so far you haven't seen massive numbers of Russian units or individuals in the military in Ukraine saying, you know, enough. This is symptomatic of we can't, if this is the way it's going to be, we can't leave. You haven't seen that. It, 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 and it doesn't appear that the military leadership has lost control in it. So my takeaway is as follows. Number one, look at the Russian view on the ground. Most Russian military members serving in Ukraine, I think, has been pretty cynical for a long 
time. I don't think they really view this as something that is a fundamental game changer. I think in some ways their view is this is just another example of the crap that they've watched, just gross inefficiency, incompetence. You know, they just view this as, oh, just another example. What will be interesting, I think, is what does, well, two things. First, it's also interesting to watch how the West has reacted. The United States, NATO, the EU, China, almost everybody has been very standoffish, saying this is an internal issue. This is nothing that we see as an opportunity that we want to get involved or perpetuate, nor is this something that we work to actively generate. Hey, this is an internal dynamic. It was created by the Wagner Group and the forces on the battlefield. We have nothing to do with it. We are not going to encourage it. We are not going to get involved. You have heard some, but it does show you now in the aftermath of this, perhaps they're a little weaker. But the West, even China, hasn't really chimed in either way. So I think there's a little bit of concern of, let's not crow here, number one. Number two, let's not give Putin the sense that this is the beginnings of a potential period of instability or increased potential for regime change. Because the, the U.S. concern in particular had always been a Putin who believes his back is against the wall is mm. more inclined to be more aggressive, more escalatory, and potentially do things that would be worse than what we're seeing right now. So I think it's one reason why you've seen the U.S. and the West really measure. They have not, even Ukraine has not really jumped on this. You're not seeing propaganda or information efforts, leaflets, flyers, emails, social media, videos of this is why you need to stop this war. This is why you need to surrender. This is why you need to walk away from the Russian military. This is why you should lay down your arms. This is why you should go home. That doesn't mean you won't down the road, but you haven't seen any of that yet, which leads me to believe that for right now, most non-Russian nations that are pro-Ukraine have said, we just need to see how this plays out. Let's not insert ourselves and try to change this into a broader dynamic. And they also don't want to feed the narrative that Putin often uses at times about, hey, the West just wants right. to right, right. West. They don't like me. They don't like you. They don't respect Russia. They want to undermine us. They want to keep us weak. They want to marginalize us. Hey, we have to stand up for the proud Russian state. We have to stand up for what is our right, what is our historic role. We have to be, we have to show that we we demand respect. We're not going to beg anybody for it. We demand respect and we have earned it. So I, I think as a result of all that, uh, We'll see. Now, on the covert side, you probably might see some activities going up again. And that is, uh, it's all very close to hell. I wouldn't be surprised. If it you mean the U.S. and its allies essentially <laughs> trying to influence people in Russia? Saying themselves, well, if you saw this fracture, are there other fractures there that perhaps that we weren't aware of or weren't paying attention to? That wouldn't surprise me, although I don't speak for the government. I have no direct right. knowledge. Or am I saying that that is happening? Just yeah. telling you. It would be rational to expect that. A rational person to me would be thinking, hey, how can we take advantage? <laughs> sure, of course, of course, of course. And so do, do you think that the U.S. overall has managed the situation well? It does seem that the U.S. administration doesn't get a lot of credit domestically anyway, but it does seem the U.S. has handled this extremely well. I'm, I'm talking about now the broader war where the Russian army has been degraded. Uh, some estimates put it, it'll take uh, five to 10 years to rebuild their force it, it, it maybe it will even take longer because of lack of access to high technology because of the embargoes and so forth and no american lives have been put in at risk no nato lives um uh, in, 
NATO has been really revitalized almost it's been like a renaissance of of its purpose and and also the motivation of the allies i mean it does seem as tragic as the situation in ukraine is and will continue to be that at the macro uh political strategic level uh things are moving in the right direction right uh it would seem for, at least for nato yeah i mean I, i'm moving in the right direction but i'd offer a slightly different view the good news is we have shown visible and meaningful support to Ukraine to ensure not just we, but a group of like-minded nations, the U.S., NATO, EU, and others, to both provide Ukraine with sufficient capability to not just defend itself, but to slowly push the Russians back, but also to send a very strong signal to the broader global community about, you know, the, the unwarranted illegal violation of sovereignty through the use of armed force that the Russians are doing against Ukraine is totally unacceptable. It is both illegal international international law, it is immoral and unethical in the sense that the human price, refugees, destruction of infrastructure, deaths, injuries, that, hey, look, you are actually engaging a war that is directed not just against the combatants of Ukraine, mm -hmm. but against its very citizens. These Arbitrary missile strikes you're doing right. in the major population centers. That's not warfare. You're, you are literally violating uh, the law of armed conflict. Uh, um, those are war crimes. It has also proven a vehicle to enhance the cohesion of NATO. NATO, in fact, is even now, it's larger than it was when this conflict started. Right, which is incredible. Uh, yeah. With doubles, NATO, I thought if the Russians didn't like NATO either being on the border or close, because of this course of action, your decision to invade Ukraine, and because of the actions of the U.S., NATO itself, and others, you have now doubled, doubled the territory with the entrance of Finland into the NATO alliance. You've now doubled NATO's direct territory bordering Russia. How's that? I'm going, so how's that for your strength? Boy, that's really working well for you. Um, it has produced a sense within some European nations, perhaps we have not been focused as much about security as we need to. So we need to increase our investment. Look what the Germans are talking about going, finally meeting the 2% commitment that they have voiced support of for literally over a decade, but never achieved because they always seem to have a reason why they couldn't do it. Uh, but have now said, hey, we're really serious this time we're going to do it. Um, they have shown that they have created the ability to not just respond from a military perspective, they being the West, the U.S., the EU, and NATO, but also to show, look, we can think multidimensional. We can do a military component to this. We can do an economic component with the sanctions. We can ensure that we're also supporting the health and well-being of Ukraine citizens. We can also ask ourselves how we can help with the rebuilding. They're doing all of this simultaneously. That is all the good part. Mm -hmm. And they have managed to help ensure that the war hasn't escalated. It has stayed a conflict within Ukraine. It has not It has not spread physically into other geographic areas. It has not increased in intensity or lethality in many ways. I'm not trying to minimize the pain that our Ukraine friends are and the price they're having to pay. But the flip side is the Russians could be doing much more than mm -hmm. they are doing right now. And I think it's also interesting that for a variety of reasons, this has not expanded into other domains. We're not seeing conflict in cyber in terms of something new as a direct result of the war. And we're not seeing conflict in space, for example. Now, again, it could all change. Right. But 
right now we've managed to contain this, if you will. Yeah, it's unacceptable, but we've stopped it from getting worse. That I think the administration deserves a lot of credit. Right, but there's a flip side to this. We have chosen a strategy in which number one, the objective is a maximalist one. What do I mean by that? The state of Ukraine objective is complete expulsion of all Russian forces from all territory that has been a sovereign part of Ukraine before this conflict started, i.e. not just the east of the land bridge, but out of Crimea. That, that is not an easy challenge. It's like I said, a maximalist mm -hmm. instinct. At the same time, because we don't want this escalate, we have been very incremental in the types of weapons and the amounts that we're providing. We haven't written a blank check by any stretch of the imagination in terms of what we're willing to give. Because we, I acknowledge the reason why. We don't want it to escalate. And then lastly, we're writing blank checks in the sense that our strategy is we will provide you weapons, we will provide you money, we will provide you technical assistance and training. But how you use it, what your objectives are, that's all your business. The net result of which is we are creating a scenario where potentially this conflict could go on for a very extended period of time. Because hmm. in some ways, to me, the focus is make sure we don't lose, make sure this doesn't escalate, and a little less about make sure we win and we drive the Russians out of all of sovereign Ukraine. And I, I don't want that to come across as, well, Rogers is down the administration. Rather, I, I try to tell people, look, we've chosen a strategy that's achieved some good good things, but there's a flip side to this strategy. Right. And the flip side to me is it, it likely perpetuates the conflict in the sense that traditionally conflicts end for one of, in my experience, studying history for one of three reasons or some combination. One, battlefield performance. Some combatant achieves overwhelming success and either feels they've met all their objectives the other side says, we can't afford to lose anymore. We got to end this. Or one or both say, you know, the price is just too high militarily. Um, second scenario is the political dimension. And sometimes an output of what happens on the battlefield in many instances, but in other scenarios where there's a political decision, we can't maintain political cohesion. We can't maintain political integrity. Our populace will not be supportive of a potentially long conflict with a high price. So traditionally, I sometimes see political imperatives, either pressure on the one of the governments to stop this, uprights, revolts, etc. And the third is historically some external party could in the past, you could argue it's been the United Nations in some scenarios. In some scenarios, it's been the primary supporters or providers of weapons, money, and support to the combatants who say, you know, look, you got to end this. And we're not going to write you a blank check. You got to end this. We just can't keep sending you arms. We can't keep sending money. None of those three conditions exist right now. There's not enough battlefield loss or victory to drive. It seems that both sides are saying we can sustain this level of activity, pain, success, you know, failure. We can sustain this. Secondly, there's no political pressure on either Putin or Zelensky to end this. In many ways, particularly for Zelensky, the pressure on him is, look, you can't end this conflict with Russian forces occupying sure. parts of Ukraine. That would be a really tough domestic political position to be in for him. And then thirdly, none of the external nations, China for the Russian, the United States, NATO, EU, 
none of the external parties are saying you have to end this. I would think, though, that right about now, more or less, uh, she and China has to be looking at this as a complete strategic disaster, right? Because they essentially got almost married with the Russians as the conflict started. It has undermined their uh, diplomatic efforts in Europe. It has triggered, I think, uh, or accelerated, perhaps is a better way of putting it, uh, American constraints on technology exports to China. Um, it's creating a, a macroeconomic global situation where uh, Chinese exports, uh, the, the demand for Chinese exports have come down even as domestic economic problems in China are mounting, uh, creating political pressure on Xi, which we know that he values political stability or the Communist Party does above and beyond anything else. Do you think, what what, do you, what, what would be your theory? And, and I, we're getting off the topic a little bit, but I, I'd love to get your, your insight on this. Uh, for when China says enough is enough, uh, it, it, I mean, there's no upside for China at this point, right? The, if, if to the extent that a year and a half ago when the invasion happened, it was some sort of uh, league of uh, of authoritarian nations kind of model where if, if Russia wins, then you know we we look stronger and able to to operate with much more freedom in in Asia, some version of that perhaps. Um, what do they have now? What's their motivation uh, to? So I, I'm gonna disagree fundamentally with much of what you just said in the okay. sense Great. number one I was in beijing much of what you just said i believe that she looks at that and says that all was occurring well before ukraine started mm -hmm. that those are manifestations of a broader dynamic between the u.s china and the west that has been playing out over the course of years it is not a direct result of the conflict in ukraine doesn't mean that it's a good thing but i think his view is it's not a direct result of the conflict in ukraine and I think personally, Xi's view is China has not had to pay a major price in many ways for the Russians' invasion. Um, another point I try to make people is, look, in the West, we view this very much as Russia bad, Ukraine good. That is not the way the majority of the world looks at this at all. Hmm. If you look at the last UN resolution, for example, that condemned the conflict and condemned the Russians, I think approximately of the 197 or 93 off the top of my head, members of the UN, 147 voted to support it. So that's almost 25% who didn't. Mm -hmm. If you look at the number of the nation world that are providing economic sanctions, military support, I think the coalition is around 35. That's 35 on 197. If you spend time, you know, I'm talking to you today from Israel, mm -hmm. but in the last few months, Europe, Asia, Australia, Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia, the Middle East for me, when you go to other nations, you see this portrayed in a very different light. Mm. You see this portrayed, nothing I agree, but the portrayal you get in some major parts of the world is the West forced through their overly aggressive actions in the immediate environs around Russia. The West forced Putin to respond this way. Not saying I agree, but that's right. there. So right. again, to me, she looks at that and goes, so on a global scale, this isn't painted in quite the same light. Yeah. It isn't really hurting me significantly so far. And much of the problems I have really don't have so much to do with Ukraine and Russia. It's much more about a broader difference that's been ongoing for a significant period of time. Finally, I think she looks at Russia and says, as imperfect and flawed as it is, a Russia that is willing to stand up to the West is in the best interest of China in that it helps negate 
America's global stance and global power. And I think Xi's view is that's a good strategic outcome. Mm -hmm. So while he thinks the Russians are far from perfect, I suspect, I think for right now, at least, his view is that continuing to refer to this as a strategic relationship of depth, substance, and meaning is in his best interest, even as he has not condoned the invasion. He hasn't come out and, and said, hey, Russia, well done. Now, the flip side is he also has refused to condemn it. He keeps talking about the parties need to decide this among themselves, and this is about respect for sovereignty, which to the West would be, so you'd have a problem with Russia. They violated the sovereignty right, right, of right. Ukraine. That's not the way the Chinese it's what the Chinese are trying to say when they say this is about sovereignty. China has always believed, this is, for example, the justification they use in the South China Sea. China believes that it is the inherent right of every nation to use the full range of capabilities to protect its national security interests and ensure the well-being and safety of its citizens. If that means the use of armed force, you are justified. So they, they use sovereignty very differently than, mm -hmm. than the West and the U.S., well, it it does seem. I mean, I'm I'm glad you you uh, disagreed with me. Uh, it, it we're so trapped in our own information bubbles. And, well, don't get you right. No, 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 no. I but I I, I totally see uh, because I'm I'm constantly reminded right that uh, both China and India are benefiting directly from the war by being able to import uh, Russian energy commodities, petroleum principally, but gas as well at incredibly discounted prices, so that they they have. I'm not going to say they have an incentive to keep the war going, but it's creating material benefits to them. But let's conclude, Admiral. Yeah, one other last point. Please. And remember, and the war, again, I'm not trying to minimize the pain for our teammates in Ukraine. Far from it. I have great respect for them. But I think another thing China looks at is this conflict is not creating global pain. Hmm. Fuel and energy are still moving. Global gas prices are not skyrocketing. Right. Grain, fertilizer, food is still moving out of this conflict. We're not having massive impact so far in a very visible way about negative outcomes flowing from this conflict, energy, food, et cetera. Were that to change, I think that would present an interesting dilemma to China. If the conflict were to start to produce pain on a broader, more global basis, then you might see opinions about this fight start to change, and you might see China faced with more of a challenge about Am I going to continue to support in some ways an effort that is leading to pain on a global basis and is undermining the perception of China as how could you support a conflict that's resulting in people not being able to have food, people not being able to afford their heating and their, you know, gasoline prices, et cetera. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's it's been a fascinating conversation. I, I would love to to talk to you again as as things develop. And uh, I hope you have a great trip in Israel, Admiral Mike Rogers. Thank you for joining the X Ray. It's great to be. Thanks. Great to be with you, Fernando. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. Same to you. I mentioned the crisis of the 1930s at the top of the show. It was President Franklin D. Roosevelt who had to navigate the looming threat of fascist dictatorships and the isolationists at home who preferred sitting on their hands rather than defending democratic friends and allies. And while the threat today is not nearly as overwhelming, I mean, Putin was almost overthrown by one of his own henchmen, the risks to American democracy are real and challenging. Democracy is not a static thing. It is an everlasting march, said FDR which feels on point. 
as we head into the next election cycle, it does seem that our democracy is on the ballot. Are you ready? I want to thank Admiral Mike Rogers for his analysis, and I want to thank the Issue One production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Renee Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue One.